and good morning again to you all. It's good to be here on this almost fall-like uh, Sunday morning. Um, so, a couple of things before we move into the sermon. Uh, there are two takeaways uh, that I'm hoping that you will take away from the sermon today. One is that, as Brittany mentioned during the announcements, we are a church of home meetings. Uh, so, if you think about how we might do discipleship in, in a church uh, like Liberty, uh, there are really kind of three uh, concentric circles that describe how we do that kind of work. And the uh, working from the outside in is how you become uh, more intimately involved in discipleship and friendship with other people. And so the first of those circles, the largest circle, is our home meetings. That's where members and attenders of the church get together on a weekly basis in someone's home. It's very uh, kind of low energy, low key, uh, and it's an opportunity not only to discuss uh, what's gone on in the sermon and what's going on in your lives, it's a chance to, to grow in relationship and grow in trust with other people in the church. And so if you're not currently in a home meeting, uh, I would encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, Tim at liberty.org, and we would be happy to get you into one. And if you are interested in hosting a home meeting, because our home meetings are uh, busting out all over, we, we need at least one more host uh, for the fall season coming up. Uh, please let me know as well. The other thing that I would like you to take away is this book. Um, so uh, today we're talking about community. And this book, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is one of the best books on community uh, that I've ever read personally. I, I encountered this about 20 years ago uh, in seminary, and uh, I'll be referring to it today in the sermon. Uh, it is a book in which Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about, in very accessible terms, what it looks like to grow in intimacy in the church. Uh, and with our, with our brothers and sisters. And so there are four copies of it here on the edge of the stage. I would encourage you uh, to pick one up, take it with you, and, and read it and be blessed by it. So all that said, community. So you, uh, by being a part of this community, you might know that my wife Susan had an accident back on July 4th. And uh, she, it wasn't a car accident, she was cleaning windows and fell off of a chair in our kitchen and she, um, I like to say that she broke 3% of all the bones in her body. She broke eight bones in one fall. So she's been recovering over the last couple of months, which is why you haven't seen her. Um, but, you know, when, when you have that many fractures and surgery to correct them, uh, you you have to kind of dispense with all of your other summer plans. So, you know, Susan and I love to go hiking. We didn't go on any hikes. Uh, we did go on a couple of walks around our neighborhood where I realized that pushing my dear wife in a wheelchair, even up the little hills uh, in our neighborhood, is a bit of a challenge. So uh, we haven't gone on too many uh, walks. Um, we love to go down the shore. Uh, or up to the mountains. We didn't do that. Uh, we've just kind of stayed at home. And what do you do at home? You watch Netflix, right? So our 18-year-old uh, daughter, Mercer, 
is a big fan of this series called Stranger Things. Has anyone here seen Stranger Things? Okay, a handful of you. Uh, nothing to be ashamed about if you have or if you haven't. Um, and I will tell you also that about 20 years ago, Susan and I were a part of a church where we had a pastor who was notorious for giving spoilers uh, during sermons. But I'm not that guy. So I'm not going to tell you what happens in Stranger Things. But I will tell you that it's a sci-fi series, kind of paranormal series. um, But it's also a series about relationships, a series about friendships. And in this little Midwestern town back in the 80s, you you find this group of people uh, that wouldn't ordinarily uh, have become friends. And, and you find out over the, the course of the series how people become friends, how those friendships change, uh, how they evolve, how they, uh, the, the people in those friendships realize that they need one another in ways that they never would have imagined uh, possible. And it's beautiful to see how those friendships mature and bear fruit over the course of the series. And so it is with the church. The church is many things, but it is also a place where relationships, friendships are formed, where they're tested, where they change, and where they grow. Relationship with God and our relationships with each other is so fundamental to the church that it's fair to say that there is no church without those relationships. There is no church without community. So we're going through a short series that started last week and concludes next week where we look at each of our three core values as a church. And last week you might remember that Pastor Evan preached about uh, worship. Uh, And today we're talking about community and next week Pastor Kyle is going to talk about mercy. Um, And each one of those three uh, core values talks about love and talks about relationships. And so worship talks about our relationship with the Lord. Community talks about how we are freed up in the gospel to love one another. And mercy talks about how we are freed up to love the city and the world around us. And so in today's text, we're going to talk about community. We're going to look at the necessity of our relationship to others in the church, the character of those relationships, and how those relationships make us more like Jesus. So the first point, the necessity of our relationship with other people in the church. Unity is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is where Paul discusses the reality and the implications of our union with Christ through his work to redeem us on the cross. As a matter of fact, there are 31 different statements that Paul makes in Ephesians 1 through Uh, three, where he says that we are these things because we are in Christ, that we have these gifts because we are in Christ, that we have been made new people, we have new identities, we have new hope because we are in Christ. And so we talk so much about the benefits of being in union with Christ through his work to redeem us on the cross. And Paul describes in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, God's master plan behind all other plans of uniting and restoring all things to himself through Christ Jesus. And so, everything that has happened in history, 
is meant in some way to uh, cause us to realize that we are united to God and that we have new life and new hope through Him. And so that's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6, where uh, today's passage begins, describe primarily our unity to other Christians. And it's interesting how Paul juxtaposes those two concepts, union with Christ in chapters 1 through 3, and then union with other believers in chapters 4 through 6. And one of the things that we see is that there's a natural flow, that the way that we are supposed to love one another and care for one another and build one another up in chapters 4 through 6 is a natural outcome of everything that we have been told, everything we've experienced in chapters 1 through 3. So we love one another in the church not because it's the right thing to do. We love one another in the church because God has first loved us. And we incarnate Christ to one another. So Paul begins... um, In chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, saying plainly that our ability to live in these redemptive relationships with one another is a natural and organic outcome of Christ's work that has utterly transformed us. What's happened is this. In the spiritually dead state that we were in, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.1, We were incapable of having any kind of real unity with God or with His people. How can a corpse have relationship with anything? Now, though, we've been made alive through the miracle of being given something completely outside of us. Regeneration, new life. And we are for the first time capable of enjoying unity with God and unity with one another. One illustration of this is uh, one of the best uh, uh, known stories in Western literature of all time, and that's the story of Harry Potter. The story, that was a joke, but uh, the story opens, if you uh, have watched any of the Harry Potter uh, series or read the books, Harry is a a wretched, unloved, friendless uh, orphan. And he is grudgingly cared for by people only out of obligation. So he goes to this school called Hogwarts. And it's there that he learns that he's destined for greatness. He begins to realize that he's so much more than what he thought he was before. And as a consequence, he begins to see himself differently and act differently. He learns that he's been given a destiny and he begins to fulfill it. So it is with us. In ourselves, you and I are nothing. We're less than nothing. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 of Ephesians, that in ourselves, all we are are children deserving wrath from God. But Jesus has come, and he's given us a precious new identity, a precious new heritage, uh, and a power more infinite and a love more lasting and real than Harry Potter could ever have dreamed. Back to our passage for today in verses 7 through 8 we read about these gifts that were given to each one of us. Jesus Christ, upon His ascension into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to fill us with the power to believe and the, and the power and the boldness to love as we have received love. 
The Spirit has given us a new destiny. The Spirit has given us a new purpose. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that once we only cared about ourselves. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about how through Christ, through this new birth that we have, suddenly our desire is to care for the other. We're no longer self-focused. As a result, we are new. And that love, that identity, that power, it has to, to, to come through us. It has to flow through us into the lives of other people in love and in action. So you see, if you are a Christian, then Paul's telling you here that it's part of your renewed essence, part of your spiritual DNA, part of your new orientation to be in radically transformative relationship with, relationship rather, with others in the church. But the necessity to be in relationship with others in the church also has a subjective aspect. Look with me at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. It says, And he, meaning Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Beginning in verse 11, Paul tells us that the ordinary way in which God matures his people is through putting them in relationship with other people. Look at it. God gave all types of leaders to his church to equip the saints for ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to empower us to attain unity with God and with one another, to become mature. And it's through this process of maturation that we finally stop being fooled by all kinds of lies and deceptions and learn to live in a state of joy with Christ and with his people. We need one another. If you, if you go on reading through Ephesians chapter 4, you see all kinds of uh, clues that that's the case. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul tells us that we are members one of another. He, he's using the body imagery to convey that, uh, just as he says, says elsewhere, that the finger can't live independently from the foot, that the ear can't live independently from the kidney, that, that we need one another in order to survive and be complete. And it's through being in relationship with one another that we are supposed to grow up. We're supposed to be building one another up in love in order that we would be free from these lies and deceptions. Now, what, what are those lies and deceptions? Paul describes them in uh, verses 13 and 14 as stormy waves that toss us to and fro 
as wild winds that push us off course, as tricks, as deceptions, as scams. And given the context of his comments, I think what he's describing are those feelings, those desires, those nagging fears that lead us to walk away from God and from His wisdom and from the comfort of His presence. Our out-of-control desires, demands, and lusts, things that sound like, I need that new pair of boots in order to be happy, or my life is too hard right now, I'm going to escape with this glass of wine. Or, my spouse doesn't love me in the ways that I crave, but this fantasy makes me feel loved. Or, being lonely is too, uh, being single rather, is too lonely. I need sex to help me feel not so alone. Those are some of the lies, some of the deceptions that we believe. That we need something other than Christ in order to be content that we need something other than Christ in order to be whole, that we can't get through life with just Jesus, that we need to do something in our own power in order to get through the difficult seasons of life. But Paul's telling us here that that is a deception. That's a lie. So here's how relationships with others in the church are necessary. Other people love us by serving as our motivational fact checkers. They tell us, as verse 15 says, in love, when our desires are out of control, our perspective is skewed by sin and when our motivations are not pure. Christian friends with whom you have this kind of trust, this kind of candor, this kind of spiritual intimacy uh, are, are the typical means by which the Spirit warns us about wrong motives and steers us away from temptation and leads us away from sin. And if you've ever had a friend uh, do that, you, you know what it feels like. Because if someone didn't step in and intervene and say, brother, sister, you're headed down the wrong path, we would just go on to our destruction. So why do I say that other Christians are the primary means the Spirit uses to do that? Scripture repeats over and over and over again how essential it is that we have this kind of spiritual intimacy with one another and this kind of unencumbered access into one another's lives. And there are some passages uh, up on the screen that talk about this. Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16 is one example. For another, there's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and 14, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Jude, verses 22 and 23. Each of these talks about the necessity of one person calling the other person to truth. Because you know what? When you and I are stuck in temptation, when you and I are stuck in sin, we might think that we can pull ourselves out by our own strength, but we can't. We might realize that we are in a pit, and we think that we have it in ourselves to climb out, but we can't. We need someone to reach in and pull us out. We might think that we have control over our desires, over our, our, our sin patterns, but we don't. We need other people in the church to convince us of the truth daily. The calling to which we've been called, which Paul talks about in chapter 4, verse 1, is to live and act and love and protect 
one another as Jesus himself loves and acts and protects us. You and I, you and I are the shepherd who goes out and seeks after the lost sheep. You and I are the father in the story of the prodigal who longs for the return of the one who went astray. You and I are the ones who help those who have been sinned against to forgive. You and I are the ones who talk with, who reason with, who counsel, who grieve with, who argue with, who challenge, who hold accountable, and sit in the pain of life with one another, all in the power of the Spirit, all in Jesus' name. Moving on to the second point, what's the character of these relationships? Much of my ministry has been uh, in the, the area of counseling. And in the hundreds of men and women that I've ministered to over the years, almost all of them have reported struggles with out-of-control sin patterns. No matter what they do, no matter how hard they try, no matter how desperately they uh, try to resist, sin always seems to get the better of them. And when I ask these people how many true spiritual friends they have, the answer is almost always none. Sure, all of them know other people in their churches, but there's no one to whom they've entrusted themselves who is speaking the truth in love to them, who's helping them to become mature in their struggle against sin. And, and friends, there is a huge difference between talking with someone in church for 10 minutes on a Sunday after worship, and actually having a spiritual friend who knows you and loves you and cares for you enough to go after you when you are stuck in a pattern of sin. It's generally not the fault of the friends that... um, uh, the, the people to whom I'm talking uh, are stuck in patterns of sin. It's usually the fault of the, the man or the woman that I'm talking with because they rarely have humbled themselves to the extent that they're willing to be vulnerable with someone else, to the extent that they're willing to let someone else see their pain, to sit with them in their anguish, or to see their shame. And that can be a really hard thing to do. We, we live so much of our lives wearing masks. We like to think that we are better than we are. We'd like to think that we don't struggle with anything in particular. We'd like to think that even the things we do struggle with, we have control over. But those are some of those deceptions, some of those lies that Paul was talking about. We cannot control sin. In the power that we have in Christ, we can put sin to death. But if you try to control sin and live with it and keep it at bay to use whenever you want, you're going to wind up getting hurt. You're going to wind up hurting others. Is it any wonder then that Paul in verses 2 and 3 of our passage today calls uh, each of us to walk out this calling to love one another with all humility. 
humility on the part of the person struggling with lies and temptation and sin because they need to be humble to let someone else in to see those things that they fear others knowing. But humility also on the part of the spiritual friend so that they don't judge the other person or condemn them or offer advice. No matter what they're struggling with, we have struggles too, which are just as bad and just as dangerous, and we need their help as well. Part of this humility is realizing that the power to help either person comes not from us, but entirely from Jesus through the Spirit, ministered through the relationship that you have with your friend. This, this then is what Paul uh, talks about in verse 12, where he talks about the work of ministry of building up the body of Christ, that we would be literally tearing down for each other the faulty spiritual and cognitive infrastructure that keeps us locked in weakness and sin and building a new, stronger, healthier body that's able to exercise godly power and bear the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. You and I are not the sources of that power. Someone wrestling with sin can't muster up the strength to turn the tide into spiritual battle. Only Jesus can. But Jesus is pleased to have us help one another in the grace that he gives to all to administer this healing work to one another. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together. And again, uh, there are some copies of it uh, which we are offering to you for free up on the corner of the platform this morning. Uh, Please pick them up after the service. Um, This is what he talks about concerning this kind of person-to-person ministry in the church. And I'm going to read a quote, which is a little long. It's up on the screen, but it's a really good quote. He says, God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. What Bonhoeffer says here echoes what Paul says in verse 15, that speaking the truth in love with one another, we are able to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Both Paul and Bonhoeffer are saying the same thing here in different ways. And what they're saying is, as Christians, we can't be content simply to state the correct doctrine. We have to live it out in our relationships with one another. And the way we do that isn't by telling someone else, you ought to do this, but rather asking with humility, if what God says is true, then how should the truth influence your life and your decisions? So radical humility is aspect one of these relationships, but in verse two, gentleness and patience and bearing with one, bearing with one another in love is the other. These words bring several things to mind. One, that growing in honesty and transparency is difficult. 
we, we all in our natural selves become so skilled at deception, deceiving others and ourselves. Truth-telling is the thing that we need to learn. And we often start very slowly, only after we learn that the other person is safe. So patience, gentleness, bearing with one another in love, and so on. Two, we know that change is a lifelong process. We need friends who are going to be with us for the long haul because repentance and sanctification won't be complete until the day when we see Jesus face to face. We need friends who are committed to us for more than a brief time and who aren't easily offended. And we need to be committed to the process of change and growing in Christ-likeness. The verb that's translated bearing with, in, in bearing with one another, means to patiently endure something that's difficult. Jesus uses it when he says in the Gospels, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here and to bear with you? It's the same word. These kinds of spiritual friendships will sometimes require a lot of endurance, as Paul says in verse 2. But in Christ, we can offer that endurance in love, with gentleness and patience. Three, these kinds of spiritual friendships are life-enhancing and beautiful, but they cost something. They're not free. This kind of deliberate and loving relationship requires us to get our hands dirty. We can't limit these relationships to polite conversations over coffee. We can't live them out solely in a Bible study or in a home meeting. We can't expect them to bear fruit if we limit them to brief conversations after worship on Sunday. These relationships will invade our space. They'll require our time. They'll drain our emotional resources and force us to our knees in prayer. We might need to spend hours over the course of time in prayer or fasting in order to gain wisdom and to know how you ought to pursue and sometimes challenge the other person. Four, these kinds of relationships are meant to be reciprocal. You can't always be the strong person in the relationship, and you can't always be the weak or the needy person. Staying on either side of the equation disproportionately reveals pride and fear. The kind of maturity that Paul talks about in this passage is meant to become increasingly reciprocal. He says in verse 16 that it's only when all the parts of the body are working properly that the entire body is healthy and growing in maturity. The weaker brother or sister, because the spirit is within them, sometimes becomes the stronger brother or sister. The strong one needs to become weak and needy sometimes. Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone and be a different kind of spiritual friend? Are you willing to humble yourself in front of someone else? Five, these relationships will at times be disappointing. You'll get impatient. Your friend will say the wrong thing. One of you will be insensitive. The other person will become offended. Sometimes uh, you won't make time for the other person. Disappointment is inevitable, but for all disappointment, there is grace in never-ending supply. There are commands in Scripture to forgive offenses uh, of all kinds and to reconcile, and even in this passage, the message that is repeated seven times in these 16 verses is unity. Unity in the body of Christ is what matters to God. 
reconciliation, grace, forgiveness, love, they cover a multitude of sins. There's no real intimacy and there's no real hope for change in your life without the risk of disappointment. So as we bring this in for a landing, let's go to our third point, how these relationships make us more like Jesus. Do you think that Jesus was this rugged, uh, indefatigable guy who never needed anyone? Because he wasn't. The Bible paints a picture of Jesus that portrays him as, as weak and as much in need of encouragement and strength as we are. We rarely read accounts of Jesus being alone. He's generally recorded being in the presence of God through prayer or with other people, and sometimes both at the same time. Jesus didn't live an isolated life. He wasn't a loner. He knew the importance of living transparently and in community, and he embraced it. Now think about this for a minute. Why would Jesus need relationship? Isn't he fully God? Isn't he all things in himself? Doesn't he have perfect communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit? Yes. But at the same time, he's fully human. And to be fully human is to need other people. Jesus needed his friends, his disciples, to bear with him in his trials and victories, even when they did it imperfectly or badly. Jesus needed his friends to pray for him and for them to assist him in work that it would have been impossible for him to have accomplished alone in his humanity. Isn't that a sobering picture of humanity? That even the God-man who had perfect relationship with the Father needed imperfect human friends whom he knew would let him down. Spiritual friends make us more like Christ because they make us more fully human. Jesus was the most fully human person that there's ever been. And when we need others and participate in those relationships wisely and lovingly and sacrificially, we gradually become more fully human as well. We become more and more like Jesus. Think back to our our first parents, Adam and Eve. Why were there two? Because God declared it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. Adam was in a perfect relationship with God, and Adam wasn't suffering. There was no sin. There was no brokenness in the world at that time. And even in that perfect situation, in the middle of paradise, with God present, God declared that Adam needed another person with whom he could experience and interpret life, and together with whom he could more perfectly image God. Do you have a spiritual friend? I'm fairly certain that you're no more, no more perfect than Adam before the fall, and I know that you're less perfect than Jesus. And yet, God made certain that both of them needed friends. Do you have someone with whom you can be completely honest, someone who you know is safe to talk about your longings, your sorrows, your fears, your secrets? Do you have someone with whom it's safe to confess your sin? Do you have someone who's willing to hold you accountable for your thoughts and actions, who's willing to bear your burdens, who's willing to stick with you as a brother or a sister for the long haul? 
You may not. And if you don't, as we close, here are three steps to find one. First, be that kind of friend to someone else. Get to know someone else at that level of, of deep trust. It takes time and it takes work, but pray for the grace to do it. You'll see yourself, uh, I'm sorry, you'll see as you invest yourself in someone else at that level that they will probably want to reciprocate. And when they do, let them in. Second, pray. Pray that the Lord will open your eyes to see someone else in this church who can be that kind of spiritual friend to walk with you through life. I can't promise you, but I've never experienced someone sincerely praying for that kind of friend without the Lord raising up that person. And third, practice humility and honesty and transparency in all of your relationships. You need other people, and you need the power of the Spirit to do this. But if you do it, you'll see that it becomes easier the more you do it. And you'll see that some of the people already in your life want to become spiritual friends to someone like you because you look and act more and more like Jesus. One last thing to consider, and that is... You can't do this on your own. Perhaps you've been convicted by something that I've said today. Perhaps you are aware of how profoundly lonely you are. Perhaps you're aware of how many secrets you have. Perhaps you know that you need someone to help you fight against the storms of life because you're being drawn off track. Pray. Pray that the Lord would make you the kind of person who is humble and honest and desiring a, a friend like that and pray that the Lord will raise someone up to, to walk along with you. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. You are perfect in every way. And you say that in Christ, you are our friend. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your perfect friendship with us. We thank you, Lord, for your perfect presence with us. We know that it will never fail. And yet, Lord, you tell us that we need brothers and sisters in this body of Christ. And so help us become more perfectly one with you and more perfectly one with them as we submit ourselves to you and as we submit ourselves to them in friendship. Lord, I pray for people in this congregation right now who are struggling because they don't have that kind of friend. Lord, provide friends in this church for everyone. And Lord, use those friendships, use that community to sanctify your people, to make us more perfectly one and to make us more more completely human. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.